Today, we're going to talk about how we are doing on reaching the ultimate goal of the Paris Agreement and how we can prevent politics from getting in the way of the real economy. Hello and welcome to Outrage and Optimism. I'm Tom Rivet-Karnak. I'm Cristiana Figueres. And I'm Paul Dickinson. Today, we examine what it will take for countries to increase their commitment to climate action under the Paris Agreement. We dig into the politics of who, in the age of Trump, can lead the world to get back on track. And we talk to Ben Rhodes, former Deputy National Security Advisor under President Obama, co-host of Pod Save the World and author of The World As It Is. Thanks for being here. So today we're going to dig into the international politics of climate change and we're going to start with an apparent contradiction at the heart of the Paris Agreement. How can the agreement both have a target to keep us on 1.5 degrees and zero emissions by 2050 and simultaneously be insufficient and leading us to over three degrees? So can I try to explain that? Do it. I'm going to try. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's the same situation that you have if you are running a marathon and you say, right, a full marathon is 26 miles or 42 kilometers. And that is the full extent of the marathon. Now, not everybody runs from mile zero to 26 in one second. They usually go through a periodic or a gradual attainment of the marathon distance, right? Hmm. So that's what the Paris Agreement does. It says we're going to run the full marathon, but we know that we're going to run it mile by mile, or in this case, five miles by five miles. So the Paris Agreement says eventually we're going to be at zero net emissions by 2050, but we we know that we're not going to get there overnight. So every five years, we're going to clock in and countries are going to come together and say how much more they can do with respect to where they were previously. So it's like saying that, you know, we know what the end point is in 2050. And right now, for various reasons, we can only commit to the first five years. And that might not be on the trajectory line to zero emissions by 2050, but we'll do what we can now. Technology will improve, politics will improve, and in five years we'll come back and improve our ambition to get closer to that line. And and the fact is that those commitments that are already registered under the Paris Agreement did shave off a huge amount of warming from the planet because before the Paris Agreement we were headed for five, six degrees. Right Now with the Paris Agreement, with the first crop of pledges and commitments that we have, we're headed for somewhere around 3 to 3.5 degrees. So certainly not enough, but much better than we were before. But that continuous improvement, the spirit of the Paris Agreement is one of continuous improvement. When's the next moment that countries have to come back with more targets? So that would be next year, 2020, at the end of the year, uh, conference of the parties, which could be in the UK, maybe, perhaps, we don't know. Uh, A couple of other European countries also vying for it, but it will be in Europe. And at that point, countries have to come to formalize whatever they're going to do. They will be welcome to send in the information throughout the year ahead of that meeting, but at that meeting, they formalize it. So let's talk about that. So let's talk about where we are on that and what needs to happen. Because 
Looking at this situation compared to where we were when the Paris Agreement itself was adopted, things seem pretty tough, right? I mean, I remember in those years, it was basically the French were incredibly active at getting countries to come forward with ambitions, as were the US. Now, the world Because the agreement different. was taking place on their territory. Of course. The Paris Agreement. That's Paris cr- is in France. Thank you for making that connection. Yes. It's very helpful. I appreciate it. But it wasn't in the US, and the US were also no. incredibly helpful. Yes. Um, but now... Um, there's not really a major country that's pushing for it. Who's pushing for this and how does it look? Well, who's pushing for it is the alliance of very small, very vulnerable countries because they know that their survival depends on this. So you have uh, an alliance of about 40-some countries that are pushing very, very hard, uh, but we know that the collective effort of those countries, because they're very small emitters, will not... Politically, it's important. Symbolically, let's say, it's important, but they're not going to make the difference in cutting emissions. It has to be the large economies. Because, I mean, you know, yes, that's very important, but that's not like having the U.S. put the weight of its diplomatic energy behind it. So so just looking at that now, I mean... Or the weight of its emissions. Or the weight of its emissions. So, so I mean, the Trump administration will not be increasing ambition. Nope. The Bolsonaro administration in, in Brazil will not be increasing ambition. Nope. When you mean increasing ambition, you mean increasing their... Or deepening the pledges. Exactly. Deepening Deep, the pledges, deepening as you described earlier. And the new government or the re-elected government in Australia, I'm guessing, will also not be increasing ambition. So if... Um, if countries are going to come back, it's not going to be everyone. It's not going to be everyone, correct. And that would be different than Paris, right? right. Because in Paris, you did have every country come in and register their commitment. Yeah. And the assumption, frankly, in Paris was that that would always be the case, that every five years, yeah. and five years is now, 2020, um, that you would have all countries come forward and revise, check, review what they had done and be able to step up. Technically, that is possible, right? Because in technology has improved and because finance is shifting. So technically, all of these countries could do it. What we, the real economy could actually do it. What we're struggling with here is the politics. Hmm. And as you say, so those three countries politically, not from a technical perspective, but politically, they're not going to do it. So the big question is, will the other countries plus the EU, China, India, uh, which are significant emitters and significant economies, would they be able to either represent what is really going on in the real economy, which is they have actually already complied with what they said they were going to do and they can step up? That's one. Or are they actually, instead of following the real economy logic, are they going to follow political logic and dynamic and say, if the EU, if the US, Brazil and Australia do not step up, neither are we going to. That's the question. And presumably that will be the dynamic. So let's let's get into that. So the idea that this incredibly important mechanism that sits behind the Paris Agreement, which is it only works if everyone comes back to the table every few years and increases what they're committed to in line with the long-term objective, which is to get to zero emissions by 2050. If that system doesn't work, then the whole process becomes vulnerable, right? Yes. If no one steps up, yeah, that really puts the credibility 
of the Paris Agreement into question. But more importantly than that, it really stops us from the possibility of getting on track with emission reductions that would take us to safe grounds and keep us at 1.5 degrees maximum temperature. That's the real problem. So this is the most urgent thing between now and 2020 is that there is a pathway for these countries to actually do this and the the politics feel manageable, right? And I guess that's what the Secretary General, why he is hosting a climate summit in September, is to get countries to come with these commitments. And that's why he has said, don't come with speeches, come with reduction plans. Right. So we're going to talk in a minute to Ben Rhodes, who um, knows very well the dynamics behind these countries, behind India and China particularly, that are still led by the same leaders that he was responsible for negotiating with as part of the Obama administration in 2015 and before. Um, But just before we do, to just touch on those countries quickly, I mean, India, Prime Minister Modi has just been re-elected with a resounding election result. And... From my understanding, India is likely to actually achieve its Paris Agreement target of 40% of energy from non-fossil fuel sources by 2030 already next year, which is 10 years ahead of the deadline. So what's your analysis of how that's going to be seen in India? Do you think that they are going to be minded to come back to the table? He's you know, just been re-elected. He has the capacity to do it if he wants to. What are you hearing about India? I think India is really going to have to make a decision because technically from the economic uh, reality of the country, they most definitely can step up for the simple reason that solar is now so much cheaper than even coal. And therefore, they would be able to step up. Um, And they have already announced that internally for themselves, they've already put a new target that goes way beyond the 40%. They've actually already put up to 60%. Mm. And they've said, we can reach that not in 2030, which is what we said in Paris, but actually in uh, 2027. So one third more three years earlier is what they already know that they can do. And they have announced it internally. Will they take that? as their target to the international field and register that officially, that really remains to be be seen. It's going to very much depend on what political and diplomatic role India wants to play next year vis-a-vis China, certainly, vis-a-vis the United States. Um, It's very much of a political calibration that they have to make. It's not technical. It's not real. It's not the real economy. It's political. And the same is true for China. I mean, China's in this fascinating position of having overachieved what it committed to, but is now locked in a trade war with the Trump administration and how that then plays into whether or not they're willing to actually increase their climate ambition. I mean, I don't feel like I have any clear sense of that. Do you? No, I think that, again, that's going to have to be a a political decision that they take. Do they want, because they're in this trade war, is this trade war, first of all, going to be resolved before the end of next year um, or not? And do they want to uh, put the U.S. to shame, so to speak, by taking this leadership position? Or do they want to say, if the U.S. is not taking a leadership position, then we're not going to either? It, it Honestly, it's impossible to know which way they're going to go. Right. 
Maybe Ben knows. Yeah, I just I want to throw in, I mean, I think that the people said climate change was a global problem and therefore it kind of couldn't be solved. And the key point was Paris showed global unity amongst governments and it showed it wasn't just possible, but to some degree achieved and even expected. So that was very exciting. But I also want to say there's this zero-sum game going on between countries trying to compete. But don't forget some of the biggest economic actors in the world, many, many, far larger than countries are corporations, almost all of them intrinsic global, all of them understanding climate change as a long-term threat, and many of them setting ambition that the countries can rise to try and match. So I don't want to underestimate corporations, mm. cities, and investors showing leadership here that, that, will, that, will, that will move nations, frankly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and nations see- wouldn't move without that. Yeah. And we've seen that dynamic play out before, right? It's amazing the political space that's opened by cities, investors, and businesses leading the way. Okay, so Christiana, sadly, I can't make it, but you're going to go and talk to Ben Rhodes. Ben, thank you very much for joining us uh, for a, uh, what I would call a geopolitical conversation. Um, As you well know, because you were one of the architects behind the Paris Agreement, That agreement was set up as a long-term guide for the evolution of the economy. It never aspired to solve the problem in one year or even five. In fact, what is embedded in the Paris Agreement is this five-year periodic review that all countries, yes, put in their best efforts of where they saw or what they saw they could do and what visibility they had into the first five years. And they did that in 2015 in Paris. But then every five years after that, they are called to review where they are and increase their ambition, as we call it, or rather put in their new pledges for reducing their emissions. And it is that periodic review and increase that we are counting on that the Paris Agreement took for granted, um, perhaps, and that is now actually coming up to its first test in 2020. Now, you were so personally involved together with President Obama in bringing countries like India and China to the table in Paris. And so we are very tempted to now have a conversation with you four years after about um, your sense of where India and China might be, particularly because I hope that we can sadly agree that it is not predictable that the United States will review and increase its pledge next year. So in view of that, let's start with India. Prime Minister Modi was just re-elected on a landslide. Certainly when he had, before he had national responsibilities, his state responsibilities, he was very much pro-renewable energy. Renewable energy, in particular solar, has dropped now at a national level in India, dropped costs even below coal. But politically, where do you think that Modi's interest and willingness to now be a leader on climate in the absence of other countries. Do you have a crystal ball from knowing him mm. as well as you do from Obama times? Yeah. What What is your best guesstimate there? Well, you know, I think the, uh, the history is instructive a little bit. Um, first of all, 
Modi went much further than the Indian system wanted to go uh, with his Paris commitment. Mm-hmm. Um, my memory of this actually in Paris, Christiana, and we'd invested a year in this personal relationship with Modi. Yes. And having worked with you and so many others to line up China and all these other countries, India was a remaining holdout. When Barack Obama went to meet with Prime Minister Modi in Paris, what I'll never forget is when he showed up for that meeting, Modi wasn't there yet, and Obama basically argued with Modi's climate negotiators for like 30 minutes. God bless um, him. <laughs> yeah, and you know those guys, right? And I do. They did not want to move an inch, right? And so then Modi comes into the meeting, and Modi looks pained because one part of Modi is the ambitious person who wants to be a global statesman, and the other part of Modi is the Indian politician who doesn't want to get too far out in front of public opinion and his own bureaucracy. And Obama and had to appeal to And very hierarchical in not understanding why President Obama is speaking to his people. <laughs> he was shocked. I mean, he came around the corner and like the blood drained out of his face. Like, oh, my God. Because Obama's <laughs> literally arguing with them about solar energy and coal. And, and, um, but what it took is appealing to that ambition of Modi's. You want to be a global statesman. You want to make your mark. And you've said you care about the environment. This is your chance to do something. Combined with a very aggressive solar energy initiative because Modi's saying, I got 300 million people who don't even have electricity. Exactly. What am I going to do about this? And Obama's mm-hmm. saying, we can make the solar cheaper than the coal. And, and that's yep. how this can be both good politics and good environmental policy for you. You know, what I've seen is Modi has, has continued to want to be associated with the steps he took on climate. He's continued to want to be in the middle of uh, a global effort around harnessing solar. Uh, He's connected that to both his development and environmental strategy there. And now he's through an election. And I think and would hope that somebody like Modi, uh, again, is thinking about what is my legacy as a global figure here? Mm -hmm. Climate is one area where I've, I've, I've made a mark. He does have to up the ambition, as you said, every five years, the goal here was to ratchet up the ambition. So I think that the the promising thing is now that he's through an election, uh, he can do some hard things again <laughs> and he can, uh, I, I think, try to accelerate the the direction they'd set, both in terms of their you know environmental targets and their development of solar. Uh, but I think the tricky thing, which I know we're going to get to, is with the U.S. kind of pulling back. It does take off a a fair amount of the pressure on other leaders like Modi. And it also, the other element that you know, Christiana, was so important is we thought that continued U.S. leadership in this would be sending a signal to global markets to be shifting in the direction of clean energy and that the money Mm -hmm. would flow and the investment would flow in the direction of clean energy. That is still happening to an extent, but I think absent U.S. leadership, um, it, it makes it harder, uh, and it, it both takes some pressure off a, a person like Modi, uh, and it also removes some of the incentives for a person like Modi. So I, I think he'll move in the right direction here, but for him to be bold, uh, I think it's going to probably take other people <laughs> uh, getting in his ear and reminding him that this is a pathway to really make your mark as a global figure. Correct. And who's not going to get in his ear is anybody in the United States federal <laughs> government. That is for sure. That is correct. So yeah. let's look around and see, you know, who else he could do this, because um, I, I don't think that he would want to do this on his own. Yeah. He might want to have some company. And uh, so obviously the uh, the partner in this leadership and in this boldness, as you well uh, speak of it, uh, would be China, right? Yeah. Uh, China, uh, the... Um, 
uh, the, currently the highest emitter or by country, certainly not by uh, per capita, but by country. Um, and there, again, you played such an incredible role in uh, in getting those two, your, the U.S. and China together. And we remember the four bilateral agreements yeah. that emerged over several years between China and U.S. That, and frankly, that was the political turning point for the Paris Agreement. Um, but now we have a very different situation between China and the United States with an ever-escalating trade war. Yeah. Um, and we have no idea whether they will escalate further or de-escalate between now and next year when all of this is due. But they might, under you know some way of looking at it, China would have a, an incredible opportunity here to really step out and be uh, an incredible world leader, isolating the United States deliberately instead of waiting for the United States to move forward. Technically, they can do that because they have invested so much, just like yeah. India. They've invested so much into solar, into wind, into EVs, into battery, into the na- the charging network in China is larger than the entire uh, world put together, etc. So they have made the technical decisions and the investments. Now, the big question is, do you think that politically this might be interesting for them to take yeah. a leadership role or... Do you think politically they'll say, hmm, U.S. is not on board, Australia is not on board, Brazil is not on board, we're, we are, we're going to downpedal what internally we know we can do? Yeah. So this is another one of those situations where, you know, when Xi Jinping came into the presidency, uh, Obama recognized right away, here's a really ambitious guy, and and where can I channel that ambition? <laughs> and so we selected climate as the issue. And, you know, between uh, 2013 and the end of 2014, when we made the joint announcement of our Paris targets with China, we really worked on this, as you know. I think that there were two things to it. Uh, one, um, Xi is ambitious. He wanted to be seen as a global leader, not unlike the, the appeal we made to Modi. But two, they have very real problems at home in their domestic politics associated with the environment. And air pollution. Exactly, air pollution, right? And so you don't often think of China having domestic politics, but the one issue that has caused the most friction there, the most protest, is the air quality. Yep. And I think Xi recognized that if he is perceived as a world leader in, in combating climate change, that that's part of a broader effort that he's trying to send a message at home that that I'm going to clean up the air. I'm, 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 I'm going to, I have an environmental focus here. It was fascinating in 2016, at the end of the Obama year, uh, administration, in the final meeting that President Obama had with Xi Jinping, um, it was it was funny because Obama was saying to him, look, you know, even if Trump pulls back on this, U.S. state and local governments are going to be in, the private sector's in. And G said, you don't have to worry about this. Uh, this is in China's interest. Mm-hmm. We're all in on Paris. And what was fascinating is like the roles had reversed. You know, <laughs> for years, the U.S. had been trying to drag China to do something on climate. And here's Obama handing things over to Trump. And G saying, don't worry about it. Uh, we'll take the leadership role here. And yeah. I, th- I think that I would, I would guess that G's direction is going to be uh, to stay engaged, to, to stay ambitious, to frankly take advantage of the U.S. vacuum to show here's an area where China is playing uh, the the leading role in, in global climate change, just as they're trying to do that on issues related to global commerce and infrastructure. The one wild card, Christiana, is if the trade war 
slows down the Chinese economy, yep. if Chinese growth is slowing, then there are going to be all kinds of secondary effects to that, including they're not going to be able to put as much resources into transitioning their economy and, and hitting their emissions target, hitting their peak emissions target. And, and so to me, this is another problem with, with the trade war not being well thought out, is that you slow down that Chinese economy and suddenly they're going to have to make trade-offs and climate is more likely than not going to be one of the things that they they downgrade their ambition. So I think Xi will stay engaged. The, the, the variable that I see as a risk is whether the trade war takes a toll on the Chinese economy. Um, the other way of looking at that, of course, sadly, because I think it's a sad interpretation, is that if there is a downswing in the economy, there is not going to be as much energy demand, and that in and of itself yeah. could bring down emissions. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, you're right. I, yeah, I mean, I, I remember that from 2008, 2009, sadly, yeah. but you're absolutely right. So difficult to tell, um, but but let me just push you one 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 notch more because you said you think that President Xi will remain engaged. He could, of course, decide to remain engaged without stepping up and beyond what he has already pledged. He could go out there and you know make a very firm political statement without putting out any numbers. What yeah. what do you think about that scenario? Uh, I, I think yeah, that's a very good. Uh- Attentive, because I, I think that's probably what he would do. You know, maybe, maybe they, they're, they're. I think the Chinese are aware enough of how closely this is watched that that they may try to indicate some marginal increase in ambition. I mean, you know, they understand uh, how this framework was set up. They understand that people watch carefully to see if if the ambition is being raised. Um, it, it would be the most likely scenario that they will try to appear to be ambitious, the global leader, make a big point of the fact that they're still in and subtly making the point that the United States is out, um, but not necessarily being very specific. And this, again, is where U.S. leadership is such a vacuum because yep. it took us, we they we made them be more specific. You know, they yes. their initial targets were very ambiguous with us. And we sat down with them over the course of 2014. Even President Obama had to close this deal in Beijing in November of 2014 and saying to Xi, if you are not specific uh, with the targets that you set, then the rest of the world is going to be left off the hook in terms of ambition. Um, and, and so that wasn't the natural Chinese instinct to be very transparent about their domestic energy plans, the transition of their energy economy, their emissions targets. It took the U.S. prodding them to do that. And so you're right. I, they may stay in, be ambitious in words, but somewhat ambiguous in details, which mm. would, would lose the global effect that you want of, of trying to lift everybody's ambition. And both India and China, at least to some extent, have actually already over-complied, not just complied, but over-complied yep. with some of the targets that they put in. What, what um, chances do you, um, do you assess of the two of them uh, consulting each other and going forward with similar strategies next year? I think that, you know, my guess, and, and you were in the multilateral framework here more than I was, but... I think at the end of the day, China and India do these matters as uh, domestic uh, decisions. In other words, their climate negotiators will talk to each other. But at the end of the day, I think these are decisions that are made in Beijing uh, and and New Delhi around Mm -hmm. their domestic concerns. Um, I think you make an interesting point about, you know, a lot of these countries are hitting their, even the United States, (laughs) even though we pulled out of Paris, um, 
you know, is, is hitting some of our baseline targets here, in part because of just the rapid development of, of, of renewable energy sources yep. for, for a lot of reasons. But what it shows is how much more ambitious we can and should be, you know. Exactly. And so the danger, of course, is that, that, that China and India take the U.S. being in the in, outside as, you know, an excuse for them to just kind of be in, you know, uh, cruise controls, we'd say, in the United States. You know, the, they, they can drive at the same speed and hit their targets uh, and feel like responsible global players yeah. um, without raising the ambition. I think the, the, the key here is to, to have Modi and Xi as two guys with very significant ambitions for themselves feel like, you know, what can I do to demonstrate I'm a global leader? Or for a Modi, yeah. you know, what kind of business leaders can we, can we have uh, in his ear as Bill Gates was in his ear before the Paris conference saying, here are all the benefits of, of solar and wind and all these other sources of energy? Or, or Xi, um, you know, wanting uh, to play the role of, of global statesman because Trump's pulling back. I mean, that intangible personal aspect is going to matter a lot with China and India. Absolutely. Uh, and, and getting them beyond just the status quo that is hitting the target to that next level. Yeah, so the, so their personal sense of legacy, I think, is going to uh, play a huge role. Um, but but it's not just legacy for them personally. I also think that if they do that, and we have no idea, um, it would really turn the conversation around because it would show that decarbonizing the economy is actually positive for a developing country. Yes, which is yes. the argument you know that that we have been making for quite a while, but that is difficult to understand. But yes. but they would be able to show that uh, pretty. Uh, pollucidly. Absolutely. Um, ben, um, and of course, talking to you, I cannot uh, resist the temptation of bringing the conversation to the U.S., um, sorry about that, but uh, but hey, we, need we live to it be- every day. <laughs> <laughs> um, so a couple of things that are of interest. Um, the first is uh, independently of what is going on in Washington D.C., you do have most, if not all, of the Democratic countries, uh, Democratic uh, candidates, putting forward some kind of a climate plan, um, and some of them saying, you know, this is the way that I want to organize the entire campaign. Others bringing in some components. But certainly, I would argue more than uh, certainly more than the last election. And so I wondered, what do you think has happened that this is now possible and that this is the reality um, that we're seeing? And how do you think that that's going to play out on the campaign trail as we move into the general election? Yeah, no, it's a really good question. I mean, I think part of what's happened is... Uh, when you see Trump move so dramatically in the other direction, you know, and you see this kind of willful climate denial in the White House, uh, and you see uh, essentially these efforts to gut environmental regulations, it has really galvanized progressives in this country around climate. I mean, that was already building here, particularly among young people, as it's been building around the world. But now what you have is the reaction to Trump is so strong that it's it's elevating climate. And, and, and frankly, uh, some of the data that's come out has, has really raised concerns here, such that if you talk to young voters in the United States who are key for the Democratic Party, this is their number one issue. Mm-hmm. And that's never been the case before where a pretty good chunk of Democratic Party voters would list climate change as their number one voting issue. That's new, right? And so the politicians are being responsive to that. And in Congress, that's led to the proposals around the Green New Deal. Just about every U.S. presidential candidate on the Democratic side has, has 
got a very ambitious approach to climate. I'd watch for a couple things, though, Christiana. One, which candidates indicate that climate is their number one priority, right? Mm -hmm. Because when you get elected U.S. president, you can only do that many things. Uh, and if, if climate is second or third, you're probably not going to be able to get as ambitious. You won't get a plan. around to it, right? You won't get around to it. Or Look, it happened with us, right? We, we had to do a trillion dollar stimulus because of the Great Recession. We did health care and we tried to do climate in Congress and we couldn't get it through. Um, until the second term. Until And then the second term, Obama just rolled up his sleeves and did every single thing he could. Um, so I, I'd look at, is this climate a top priority for people? But then the other piece that's really important, and I've said this to a number of the campaigns and candidates, is a lot of the discussion in the U.S. is focused just domestically, you know, or what are we mm -hmm. doing at home? And that really matters, and I'm really glad that discussion's happening. I'd like to see this broadened out to how are we approaching this globally? Uh, climate change, I think, can be an organizing principle for American foreign policy uh, in a way that it hasn't been in the past, in a way that terrorism mm -hmm. has been since 9-11. Climate change is a much bigger threat than terrorism. Mm -hmm. If we made climate change an organizing principle of our foreign policy, one, there'd be a lot more resources for it. And I, I think if you have a trillion-dollar defense budget, uh, I'd like to see some of that money repurposed uh, for, for climate mitigation mm -hmm. and, and, and mm -hmm. climate policies. And then two... We had to make climate a leading issue. In and all and of our sorry, the Department of Defense and the military in the United States have already recognized that this is a huge national Absolutely. security threat. Absolutely. And, and yeah. we in the United States are projected to spend a trillion dollars modernizing our nuclear weapons. That is crazy. Like you, you, people want to know how to pay for the Green New Deal. You know, we should be taking chunks of that money and purposing it to the leading national security threat we have, which is climate. Mm. I, I think people, we talked about Modi and, 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 and Xi. I think people don't recognize that to make progress globally on climate, you have to make it a leading issue in all of your bilateral relationships, mm -hmm. right? And so mm -hmm. making climate change central to our foreign policy would mean making it central to how we engage the leaders of China and Indonesia and South Africa and Brazil and India and, and other countries, of course. And, and so I'd like to hear this kind of sense of how the ambition at home around climate can translate globally, um, because it's going to take that that brand of U.S. leadership, I think, to, to give some momentum to, to global climate efforts and to efforts to deal with the effects of climate change around issues like migration, right? It's going to take a lot of global cooperation to deal with that. So I'd like to see these candidates uh, project out uh, beyond uh, the domestic issue in terms of their vision of U.S. global leadership on climate change. It, it would also help, if I may, um, Ben, to puncture the myth that nothing is happening on climate, that just because Washington, D.C. is stalled, that that means everything else is stalled. And the fact is, when you look over your shoulder to other countries, and certainly into some sectors like energy and electric mobility, you see that, and finance, you see that there's quite a bit of advance there. Yes, and, and this is why I like how much you talk about this, Christiana, because part of what's missing is you know, the messaging on climate in this country has been very fear focused, you know, how horrible yep. it is. You know, people need to hear the we can do this part of the message, the mm -hmm. optimism, the yep. what we can achieve, you know, uh, why this is a better way to develop, uh, how the U.S. can become a leader in new industries. Right. And, and it already is, frankly, I think that politically in the campaign that's going to be very important for Democrats to because people hear climate change and they, they know that the Republicans deny it exists and the Democrats think it's the end of the world. Th there's a third piece of this, which is the opportunity that the comes opportunity. with transitioning. Exactly. Yeah. 
Exactly. Well, fascinating, right? Fascinating. So yeah, so you're saying has to become the number one priority for the elected president in order to really uh, make a difference at home and abroad. Yes. And, you know, I don't think you have to make it the only issue some candidates have, but I think, you you know, you can say now in the United States in 2019-2020 that, that this is going to be certainly a top priority of my foreign policy, a top priority domestically, and, and you can connect it to the economy. Obviously, voters here care about the economy and job creation, but there's economic growth and job creation to be had Absolutely. through a lot of these climate change proposals that, that some of the candidates are, are developing. And that Certainly that much more job creation than through fossil fuel. That's for sure. Well, the, yeah, the cold jobs. <laughs> Trump's, you know, <laughs> promised all these cold jobs coming back. I mean, the, 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 there's none. They're, they're not coming back, right? And so this has been a, a lot of <laughs> disinformation and denialism in this debate. Uh, the n- number of jobs that, that we created under the Obama administration, just in the plus ups in solar and, and solar and wind, dwarf anything that's been done to bring back, you know, coal miner jobs here, which are not coming back. Yeah, exactly. Ben, thank you so, so much. Uh, uh, thank you for, uh, for, for looking into a crystal ball. I'm sorry to put you in front of a crystal ball, but I actually wondered whether I could do that again a few months from now course, uh, yeah. when, when some of the tea leaves are, are a little bit uh, clearer to read. Um, would love to invite you back on to, to get your sense, certainly uh, once, uh, once we have a clear uh, Democratic candidate that would be really helpful to get your sense there. Um, and once we get a little bit more information as to what uh, what Modi and she are, are, are doing on that side. So thank you very much. Always a pleasure to speak to you. Um, and I hope that we can um, have you again. No, thanks so much. Uh, thanks for your leadership on this for so many years. And uh, yeah, I'd love to come back on. And you have your little magical little microphone now. So we'll, I do, I will invite yeah. you to use it. <laughs> I even know how to use it. Yeah. Yay, fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> thanks very much, Ben. Okay, thank you. Bye. Bye. So, in summary of this fascinating conversation that Christiana and Ben had, we have 18 months to achieve these step-ups. If we don't manage this, it's going to be so much harder, as in close to impossible, to get to where we need to be on climate. And so our fate is hanging by some pretty tenuous threads, given the cards that we have to play. And much of this comes down to how Modi and Xi see this as playing for them politically in their domestic spheres. Now, you can go round and round this issue for a while, but you generally come back to where you started. And that is that eight years of Trump would be orders of magnitude more damaging than four. Thanks for listening to this episode of Outrage and Optimism. Each week, we bring you conversations about how we can deal with the climate crisis, and we're having a great time doing it. And we're thrilled that so many of you are listening. Thanks for being here, and please do share the podcast and leave us a rating. So it just remains for me to say that Outrage and Optimism is a production of Global Optimism. The co-hosts are Christiana Figueres, Paul Dickinson, and me, Tom Rivett-Karnak. I'd like to thank everyone who made this happen. Pete Clutton-Brock, Clay Carnill, Chloe Revel, Natasha Rivett-Karnak, Alexandra Vargas-Morera, Sarah Thomas, Marina Mancilla, Callum Grieve, and Zoe Cholakantich. 
I'd also like to thank Michael Northrup from Rockefeller Brothers Fund and Nigel Topping from We Mean Business. You can connect with us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and please do subscribe and leave us a rating. Next week, it's World Environment Day and there's a specific focus next week on air pollution. Now, as we all know, air pollution has become one of the defining issues at the moment for precipitating a sense of outrage in multiple countries around the world. We have a great interview for you next week. We sit down with Dr. Arvind Kumar, a pulmonary surgeon from New Delhi who's been working in this issue for 30 years. And we discuss with him what he's seen over that time and why his experience has led him into campaigning for clean air rather than continuing to believe that his best use is served in the operating theatre. We'll see you next week. Music